Turn in the Word of God this evening, beloved, to Luke 22. Luke 22. Appreciate those who had to step in at the last minute today as well. Brother Randy with Dr. Overley is one of the casualties, uh, as well as uh, Hannah Allison, uh, both of which are meant to be participating today. We're very thankful to have backups. And then sometimes backups to the backups are necessary too. So appreciate everyone being RFA, ready for anything, which is a part of the Lord's work. It's been a blessing to have the Strucks in our home as well. Uh, Caleb and his wife, Yvonne, the three children. Uh, Caleb's uh, a deacon in the Calgary congregation. And uh, it was very, we have precious memories of those days when he walked in unconverted. And he and his brother were the first uh, saved during the time that I was there. And both of them deacons now serving the church. Pray for them. Pray much for the the work of God there. You may want to uh, speak to Caleb afterwards and even ask him specific prayer requests. I'm sure he'll be happy to uh, talk to you about the needs of the work in Calgary. You've opened the Luke 22. I'm going to ask you just to look up to verse 37 of the previous chapter. We're going to pick up in the reading there and read through verse 6 of chapter 22. So, Luke 21, verse 37. And in the daytime he was teaching in the temple, and at night he went out and abode in the mount that is called the Mount of Olives. And all the people came early in the morning to, he- to him in the temple for to hear him. Now the feast of unleavened bread drew nigh, which is called the Passover. And the chief priests and scribes sought how they might kill him, for they feared the people. Then entered Satan into Judas, surnamed Iscariot, being of the number of the twelve. And he went his way and communed with the chief priests and captains how he might betray him unto them. And they were glad and covenanted to give him money. And he promised and sought opportunity to betray him unto them in the absence of the multitude. Amen. This is the very infallible Word of God, beloved. Receive it as such. Receive all its instruction by faith. And the people of God said, Amen. Let's pray. Lord, bless our time around the Word this evening as we draw closer to the close of Thy day. We pray that our hearts may be helped, that we may go to our beds tonight resting in the provision that we have in Christ. There may be some here, young, or maybe not so young, who have yet to rest in Christ and turn to Him. And I pray that their eyes may be opened to behold wondrous things out of Thy law, especially Thy free and full promise of pardon found in Jesus Christ alone. Give help to this preacher, give help to each before us, and grant that the Holy Spirit might empower in all of our weakness. Lord, we look for days when Thou wilt take the ordinary and make it extraordinary. In all the ordinariness of this preacher and this congregation, 
that we might enjoy extraordinary times around the world, not because of any manipulation of man, but because God has condescended and come in power and revealed His Son gloriously. May even tonight that be the case. May may it please Thee, Lord, to look upon us and see in us a desire for Thy presence. For we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Is there any one act of an individual more infamous than the act of betrayal by Judas Iscariot? Not even for those who are simply Christians, but anyone who has been in the world, certainly in the Western world, if you were to ask for an infamous act of one particular individual, many will conclude that at the top of that list is the act of Judas Iscariot. The background to our portion tonight, it takes us back to Luke 19. Go to Luke 19 just so that you see how Luke has been preparing the way. Even before this, I should say, but in the immediate context, Luke 19 verse 47, he taught daily in the temple, but the chief priests and the scribes and the chief of the people sought to destroy him and could not find what they might do for all the people were very attentive to hear him. He has come into Jerusalem, he is teaching in the temple, and the chief priests and the scribes and the chief among the people are looking to destroy Jesus. Having addressed much of the instruction and various other aspects leading up to where we are, we pick up, Luke brings us back to the same idea. Verse 2 of chapter 22, the chief priests and the scribes sought how they might kill him, for they feared the people. When Jesus would come into Jerusalem, He had a very methodical way of going about His business. In fact, He stayed at a particular home, about two miles outside the city in a little village called Bethany, the home of Mary and Martha and Lazarus. And He would stay with them during His time in Jerusalem, and it would seem that He would make His journey uh, to there and back every day as He went to teach in the temple. And that's why I bring you back to chapter 21, verse 37. In the daytime, he was teaching in the temple. At night, he went out and abode in the mount that is called the Mount of Olives. That's, that's in that area. He's going to Bethany. And he's staying with them. And then he would come back. And we're told the people came early in the morning to him in the temple for to hear him. So all of this is surrounding Jerusalem and just outside of Jerusalem. As the Lord comes in, each day to teach and to preach to the people. And what we have here in this portion tonight is, of course, that famous act of the the beginning, certainly, of the betrayal. The idea, the interest of the chief priests, and that coming together, and that marriage between them and Judas surnamed Iscariot. Verse 4, he went his way and communed with the chief priests and captains how he might betray him unto them. We'll find out what happens and the idea as we proceed through this portion. Eventually, we'll come to the very betrayal itself. But I want us to pause here, give thought about the the plot or the plan of the betrayal and the lessons that we can learn and why this is given to us and what details are shared with us concerning Judas and the events that led him to do such a thing. 
This is here for our learning. We are to be instructed by one who was highly favored and yet betrayed the Son of God. So I've titled the message tonight, Planning to Betray Jesus. Planning to Betray Jesus. And I want you to note with me, first of all, the diligence of Jesus. The diligence in two areas. First, to teach. And second, to pray. That teaching can be seen again in the end of the previous chapter, where in the daytime he was teaching in the temple. Verse 38, all the people came early in the morning to, to him in the temple for to hear him. Now, teaching is exhausting work. There are many teachers in this congregation, those who have experienced with teaching, certainly. And if you can imagine the context of teaching, not just a class of children, though that can be taxing and difficult in and of itself, but imagine being in a context where you're surrounded by those who consider themselves to be eminent scholars, who scrutinize every single word, and are known to be men of eminence and knowledge. They are notable for their experience, their rabbis, their teachers of the law, they're experts in narrow fields. And they're all looking at Jesus, and the vast majority of them are against him. Added to that, you have the popularity, the people who are constantly pressing on Jesus, looking for things from him, desirous that he might help perhaps their loved ones or whatever else. This is intense. All day long, he teaches, he teaches, he teaches. He can see over the heads of the crowds of those who are listening, the murmuring and the coming together of minds and the, 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 the interest that many of the leaders had in finding a way to take him and destroy him. This is intense. And yet our Lord does not shy away from it. He is not afraid even though the threat upon his life was, was very real. And this is, this is the way gospel preachers have been. When they know that they have this, this woe is on to me if I preach not the gospel, they will often put themselves in dangerous scenarios. And sometimes those who aren't called to such a thing look on and say, why would you do that? Why put yourself in danger? Or why speak on things and details that upset people? and rile people, and get those who are powerful against you. Why would you do it? Sometimes it just has to be done. And the preacher feels the impulse, the drive, the call of God upon his life to carry on, despite the threat upon the life. I trust that God will spare me many years of being able to minister the Word without this. But the day may come, the day may come, should God spare my life and have another 20, 30 years, whatever, the day may come where these events arise. And some of you may, you may have that question. Why does he address those things? Why doesn't he comply? Why doesn't he give in? Why doesn't he try to avoid the trouble that is brought on by dealing with this? But sometimes the matter is too important. Sometimes the issue is too vital. And silence is sin. So Jesus ministers, continues to teach despite all the threat upon his life, and it must have been exhausting, utterly exhausting. So when we often think about the Lord and we think about his, his uh, time leading up, of course, to the, the cross and the exhaustion of Gethsemane 
and the trials and so on and so forth, and you think about all of that, the exhaustion begins long before that. The, the, the daily instruction in the temple in a threatening position, feeling all the pressure that was upon him. But he continued to teach. And he continues to pray. He continues to pray. Because part of the reason for the detail of verses 37 and 38, well, verse 37 particularly, where he is at night, he goes out in the boat in the mount that is called the Mount of Olives, it's, it's setting a scene. If you go to verse 39 of chapter 22, just move down in this 22nd chapter to verse 39. He came out and went as he was wont, as he was accustomed to the Mount of Olives. Now, you know that. You know he's accustomed because you were told that. This is what he's been doing. He's been heading out to the Mount of Olives. But here, on this occasion, as he was wont, he goes to the Mount of Olives, and his disciples also followed him. And when he was at the place, he said unto them, Pray that ye enter not into temptation. And he was withdrawn from them about a stone's cast, and kneeled down and prayed, saying, Father, if thou be willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. And so in that going out, you see the practice. He heads out after a day of teaching. He goes out to do what in the Mount of Olives? What's he doing there? He's out there to pray, to close out the day in prayer. Not just this one time in Gethsemane, the famous scene, but this has been his pattern. And every day he's been doing this, going and teaching all day, exhausting himself in public ministry, and then walking back and heading into this place that is solitary with his disciples to pray. And this comes to the fore, very much so, in John's gospel when he highlights that this is the reason why Judas knew exactly the opportune time to get the Lord Jesus. Because in John 18, you may listen or you may turn there, it may be helpful just to see it for yourself, but John 18, we're told in verse 1, when Jesus had spoken these words, of course this is his high priestly prayer, when he had spoken these words, he went forth with his disciples over the brook Kidron, where was a garden into the which he entered and his disciples. And Judas also, which betrayed him, knew the place, for Jesus oft times resorted thither with his disciples. This, this, this is where, and as we proceed, we'll see the thinking behind Judas Iscariot. There's more to it than this, but you see that he understands this is the time. Remember how the chief priests and so on, they, they want to kill him, but they fear the people. What, do they, what does it mean they fear the people? We, he, he, the, the presence of the multitude who want to hear Jesus continue to teach. It is not a time where they can arrest him. Verse 6, the desire is then to betray him onto them in the absence of the multitude. And this is the opportune time. And Judas knows. Judas knows. This is his pattern. After all day of teaching in Jerusalem, in the temple, he heads out and he goes to the Mount of Olives and there he prays. Beloved, if ever there was encouragement to you to continue to pray, to make sure you give time to prayer, even when you're exhausted, it is here. In the ministry of your Savior, in seeing him, 
continue to labor and labor and labor and labor to preach the Word, but not to set aside the, the place of prayer, committing the day to God, committing himself to God, bringing burdens to God, not neglecting prayer. Jesus was diligent. He kept on about the business that was vital. Is this not the example then that was given to the apostles when the matter of the Greeks' widows and their needs arise in Acts 6 and they say those words that they, sh they, they can't get caught up in all the needs of this because we must give ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the Word. That's what they saw Jesus do. They knew that that was their calling and they knew that that was their focus because they had seen the Lord Jesus give His life in that work. Just giving Himself constantly, preaching, 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 praying, seeking God, bringing the matters in prayer constantly. How diligent was the Lord Jesus. How shameful it is that we do not follow in His footsteps make all sorts of excuses regarding our prayerlessness. It ought not to be. But not only note here the diligence of Jesus, but the division of the Jews. The division of the Jews. There are those, first of all, who wish to hear him. Verse 38, all the people came early in the morning to him in the temple for to hear him. They're getting up early. I mean, they're, they're excited that the opportunity they have. And of course, part of the problem is getting anywhere near so that they can actually hear every word. Because amidst all the noise and the commotion and the, the crowd, the more people, the more ambient noise, and the more difficult it is to catch exactly what's being said. And so the remedy for that is get up early. Get up early. And go and find your spot at the feet of Jesus. Oh, I know perhaps there motivations weren't always what they should have been. And no doubt among this very crowd are those who will then cry out, crucify him! How fickle men can be. But it does show us that, that there ought to be in us something of this, shouldn't there? A desire, an interest. I know I, I am no preacher is the prince of preachers, Jesus. None. Don't exist. And so you might say, well, we have a very poor imitation of a preacher. And we, that, that makes it difficult to have any kind of zeal to, to get early to the house of God and hear the Word of God. The problem of that, of course, is that at the very least, when you gather here, the very Word of Jesus is read in your hearing. And He preaches to you through the word that is read in your presence, in addition to the remarks that are made upon it, he shows his mind and reveals his will to you. But we hear from him, and therefore there should be this desire to hear him. But there's not only those who wish to hear him, there's those who wish to kill him. See that in verse 2, the chief priests, the scribes, sought how they might kill him. This is their desire. Why did they want to kill him? Why? What's the issue? The main issue, and 
Pontius Pilate wasn't slow to pick up on this. We read of his thoughts concerning them in Matthew 27, verse 18. He knew that for envy they had delivered him. Envy. It's this nobody, the carpenter's son from Nazareth, who has all this attention And these men of eminence and knowledge and schooling and long lines of of education and learning. People don't get up early in the morning to hear them. (laughs) They're They're not as excited. There aren't the vast crowds. They're not swelling around them. But here is this man from Nazareth. Again, apparently a nobody. And yet the The crowds are thronging him. They're swelling to hear his every word. They're anticipating his arrival. And they are envious. Now, when it comes to why they talk among themselves regarding why he needs to die, they don't bring this up, right? None of them are saying, I have a feeling of envy in my heart. Yeah, so do I. That's not what they're saying. But that's the driving motivation, Pilate saw it. Pilate was a shrewd man. You don't become governor. You don't get to the kind of position that Pilate obtained and maintained without knowing people, without reading other leaders. And he knew exactly what was in their heart. It's envy. They're envious of this man. This is what's driving them. But that's not what they discussed. They had secondary arguments, ones that would appear more reasonable in their discussions with one another. The ways in which they would justify their emotions. They're feeling envy. They can't say that. They have to justify that feeling, that way they feel that they're against him. Well, part of that, of course, was to think of him as a a danger to the status quo This man, Jesus, might incite a revolution. He might bring the wrath of Rome upon us. We need to deal with him. And of course, it's not like this was unheard of. There had been a recent revolt. I don't know exactly how recent. My thought is it hadn't been all that long ago. How do I know that? I know that because of the details we're given concerning the characters who appear around the arrest of the Lord Jesus Christ and His trial. Go to Luke 23. Verse 18. They cried out all at once, saying, Away with this man and release unto us Barabbas, and note the detail that Luke gives us, who for a certain sedition made in the city and for murder was cast into prison. Verse 25, he released unto them him that for sedition and murder was cast into prison, whom they had desired, but he delivered Jesus to their will. And it is likely that the two 
characters on either side of the Lord Jesus, the malefactors were involved in the very same event. They too were part of whatever this revolt, this sedition was. So, I mean, there's a legitimate threat there. There is a fact that there is a certain uh, tension and energy, and there are those who are causing trouble. Those of of a zealot mindset, politically inclined to try and revolt against the rule of the Romans. And so this is a way they can reason it out. Of course, when we, when we come to the, the discussion, the trial, when, they're, when he's, he's being tried by the Jews, of course, they're, they're not dealing in terms of the fact that he might bring a revolt, cause a, a sedition uh, that upsets the Romans. That, that's not the discussion. It's about blasphemy. But they can't bring a charge of blasphemy to Pontius Pilate. So, of course, they have this other angle, which he says he's a king, he's a threat to Caesar, and so on. We'll get to that in due course. But here you have it. You have those who want him dead. They wish him to be gone. And they know they can't arrest him. The crowds are too desirous to hear him. They fear the people, verse 2 tells us, back in our passage And their only hope is to get their hands on Jesus in the absence of the multitude. Verse 6. So how are we going to do it? How are we going to do it? Jesus had a knack of disappearing out of the crowd and moving away in such a fashion and manner that they had no idea exactly where he went. But his disciples knew. Judas being among them. This brings us finally then, and we'll look at this, this will take up a little more of our time, the devil possession of Judas. We've seen the diligence of Jesus, the division of the Jews, the devil possession of Judas. It's a fascinating detail, isn't it? We're told, verse 3, then entered Satan into Judas, surnamed Iscariot, being of the number of the twelve. We'll look at that in just a moment. I want us to see five things about Judas Iscariot, just really setting the scene before we get to the betrayal itself. Consider first with me his character, his character. We are told in verse 3 that he is Judas, not, not an unusual name, common name, surnamed Iscariot, surnamed Iscariot. Now, there's some debate about exactly what Iscariot means, but the most likely answer to it is that it points to the town that Judas was from. His line, his heritage, there's a little village in the south of uh, Judea called uh, Kerioth, and it's mentioned in Joshua 15.25. So it's in southern Judea. We know that his father's name was Simon from John 6.71, which brings this interesting contrast between Judas and everyone else who was chosen to be an apostle. The other 11 were all from Galilee, every one of them. But it appeared Judas was from the southern region, from Judea, which immediately makes him slightly different to everyone else. It also makes, means that he, did, he, was, he managed to avoid some of the criticism that was brought because of these rural northerners who were sometimes despised or looked at with a certain amount of disdain by those of Judea. 
he would have seen, uh, seen as a man more of, of distinguished or uh, credibility, let's say. So he's favored in that way. This is, tells us something about his character and his background. We have also his commission. Because here's a man who finds himself among the twelve. Back in Luke 6, we're given that account of Christ choosing the apostles, and Judas, of course, is found in the mixed. And not only is he chosen to be an apostle, but he is given a particular job as an apostle. He's given the responsibility to oversee the ministry funds for Jesus and the disciples. I, don't, I assume that he had gifts in administration, gifts in management, and he is, is it's like the obvious choice. Judas, this is your job. As we travel around, we have various expenses and needs and people want to give to the ministry and support us along the way. It all goes to you. It all goes to Judas. Someone comes, maybe who's been healed and blessed by the Lord Jesus or even by the apostles. How may I repay you? I want to give you something. They would say, see Judas. See Judas. All funneled through him. He had to manage the funds. He had to manage all the gifts that were given and the expenses of ministry during their time. So this is part of his commission. He has responsibility. He is respected. No, one, no one's looking at Judas with any sense of suspicion. Now, we know this that happens whenever Jesus says, one of you will betray me. And they're all looking and saying, is it I? They're not immediately saying, I, I think I have, I have a hunch. I have a hunch. They never thought it for a second. Judas conducted his affairs with decorum, with care, with tact. Never once does anyone suspect what's going on in his mind and heart. Thirdly, his confusion. His confusion. It may have been that Judas had zealot-like tendencies and therefore a strong inclination to see Roman rule broken if you go to John 6, you'll see perhaps an indication of that in this crucial chapter of the feeding of the 5,000. John's account of the feeding of the 5,000 really elevates it. Instead of it kind of falling into the middle, of falling into, you know, one of the other miracles performed by Jesus and just recorded by the synoptic gospels, and it is, it's recorded by them all. John, John shows the significance of it. And after the miracle itself in the opening verses of John 6, we're told that the response to this, verse 14, those men, when they had seen the miracle that Jesus did, said, this is of a truth, that prophet that should come into the world. They're referring to the a prophecy that Moses had given that had come through him in Deuteronomy 18, verse 15. So they're seeing that. They're seeing this match up. Moses said there should come this prophet like unto him. This must be him, is their conclusion. Verse 15, when Jesus therefore perceived that they would come and take him by force to make him a king, he departed again into a mountain himself alone. So the motivation of the people, having seen this monumental miracle, 
where probably north of 15,000 people, remember it's 5,000 men plus women and children, so probably north of 15,000 people are fed with a boy's, whatever he had on with him, five loaves and two fish. And it's broken up, it's multiplied, and there's, there's enough left over to feed more. Well, this next day, of course, this causes a massive interest in Jesus. And the day following, verse 22, the people are desirous to get to where he is. And then you have the discourse where Jesus teaches regarding himself being the, the true bread from heaven. And he's tying himself into what miracle occurred in the wilderness with the giving of manna and so on and so forth. You come to verse 53, you have a significant verse here. Verse 53, Jesus said unto them, Verily, verily, I say unto you, except ye eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, ye have no life in you. This is a call to a faith that sees the Messiah. Look at the title. What's given there? The Son of Man. That's a messianic title. And he is saying, you have to see the Messiah as one who is going to suffer and you appropriate life, not by lifting him up to be an earthly king and hoping he conquers all his and our enemies, but by seeing him in his suffering and believing that by his death, by his humiliation, we receive life. Albert Barnes summarizes in this way, the plain meaning of the passage is that by his bloody death, his body and his blood offered in sacrifice for sin, he would procure pardon and life for man. But they who partook of that or had an interest in that should obtain eternal life. Go down then to verse 60. Just follow me here because this is all leading up to something relating to Judas. Verse 60. Many therefore of his disciples, when they had heard this, said, This is an hard saying. Who can hear it? When Jesus knew in himself that his disciples murmured at it, he said unto them, Doth this offend you? Are you offended by the fact that this is what I've come to do and not what you wanted me to do? Are you offended by the fact that I'm going to humble myself and be obedient unto death, even the death of the cross? And it's by that you get life. Men have their own ideas about what God should do, what the Lord Jesus should do. And they struggle when it is, His will is contrary to theirs. Verse 64, There are some of you that believe not. For Jesus knew from the beginning who they were that believed not and who should betray him. And he said, Therefore said I unto you that no man can come unto me except it were given unto him of my Father. From that time many of his disciples went back and walked no more with him. Then said Jesus unto the twelve, Will ye also go away? Then Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? Thou hast the words of eternal life. And we believe and are sure that thou art that Christ, the Son of the living God. In other words, Peter is saying, you are, you are the promised one. You are. 
And even if what you're going to do is not what we hope you're going to do, even if it differs from that, he's focusing on this fact that we must, we cannot deny that you are who you are. Jesus answered them, Have not I chosen you twelve, and one of you is a devil? He spake of Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon, for he it was that should betray him, being one of the twelve. And I just wonder if the inclusion of Judas in this interaction is, as Jesus is pushing, or let's say he is filtering out those who have a false perception about what he's about that the inclusion of Judas is actually touching on part of Judas's problem, that really his heart was with those who went away. He wants what they want. He desires a king. He wants one to come triumphantly and conquer the Romans and give them back their liberty and their land. So I wonder if the inclusion of this detail shows some of the confusion, the confusion that existed in the others, the the multitude, including disciples of Jesus, that Judas has found in that confusion, that part of his motivation to join the disciples in the first place was believing that this is the one who will come and be king and give us the liberty we seek. Fourthly, his corruption. His corruption. Turn for a moment to Matthew 26. Matthew 26. Because Judas manages to stay with the party, despite perhaps the disappointment should he be found among those that crowd. If we're reading that right, then he, he, despite the disappointment, he carries on. He's, he's still involved, engages in ministry. He's performing miracles and preaching just like all the rest of them. Matthew 26, verse, we'll read from verse 6. So again, this brings us into a scene of when Jesus in the last week is, is staying in the area of Bethany. We're told in verse 6, Now when Jesus was in Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, there came unto him a woman having an alabaster box of very precious ointment and poured it on his head as he sat at meat. When his disciples saw it, they had indignation, saying, To what purpose is this waste? For this ointment might have been sold for much and given to the poor. Just Hold there and go to John 12. Hold in that portion because we need to come back to Matthew 26. But go to John 12. Because Matthew 6, 26 rather, tells us that the disciples saw this act and they, they had indignation. If you go to John 12, you get a little more color regarding what occurred. So you have the occasion, verse 3, Mary taking a pound of ointment, a spikenard, very costly. Verse 4, Then saith one of his disciples, Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, which should betray him, Why was not this ointment sold for 300 pence 
and given to the poor. This he said, not that he cared for the poor, but because he was a thief and had the bag and bare what was put therein. So the, 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 the thought came from Judas Iscariot. In fact, I'm, I'm, I'm thinking from memory, Mark's account may make this even more clear. If I'm wrong here, I'm sorry, but I, I think in my mind, I didn't put this down, but yes, Mark 14, Mark 14. Well, it doesn't really add too much more in it, but you have this, the same idea, verse 4, after the event itself, there were some that had indignation within themselves and said, why was this waste of the ointment made? For it had been sold for more than 300 pence and had been given to the poor, and they murmured against her. So anyway, you have, you have the disciples responding in this way, and it appears to be initiated by Judas Iscariot, which of course makes sense. He's the money man. He's always thinking about the value of things and what might be accomplished or done by, uh, or, or what, what it might achieve and what doors might be opened by every cent and dollar. And so he has this, this, this thought in his mind. Now go back to Matthew 26. Because he, he utters it, it seems like they all enter in and they feel the same way as Judas. Jesus, of course, will, will intervene and clarify the thinking regarding it, but he, <laughs> you'll see in Matthew 26 that Judas will not be persuaded regarding what happened here. So we read as far as verse 9, verse 10, when Jesus understood it, he said unto them, Why trouble ye the woman? For she hath wrought a good work on me, for ye have the poor always with you, but me ye have not always, for in that she hath poured this ointment on my body, she did it for my burial." Verily I say unto you, wheresoever this gospel shall be preached in the whole world, there shall also this that this woman hath done be told for a memorial of her. Verse 14, then one of the twelve, called Judas Iscariot, went unto the chief priests and said unto them, What will you give me that I will deliver him unto you? And they covenanted with him for thirty pieces of silver. And from that time he sought opportunity to betray him. You see? You see the connection? You see that in, in watching this, this gift, Judas, he, he, he simply can't reason as to the value of Jesus. He can't understand the devotion. He can't comprehend her mentality. He doesn't discern her heart. All he can see are the dollar signs. And perhaps even that thought in his mind regarding the percentage that he would perhaps siphon off from the sale of the ointment. And maybe in conjunction, the fact that it's an anointing that is done with an eye to his death, maybe that compounded the fact because in his mind, the Messiah is not here to die. He's here to rule and conquer our enemies. This is where we see the corruption of Judas. If he is part of that crowd in John 6, he's confused. But here he is corrupt. He cannot understand why this woman would show such devotion and such love. 
Which brings us then finally to his crime. His crime. Because we're going to read about it. Go to Luke 22 again, verse 47. He makes all the arrangements. Luke 22, 47. While he yet spake, behold, a multitude, and he that was called Judas, one of the twelve, went before them and drew near unto Jesus to kiss him. But Jesus said unto him, Judas, betrayest thou the Son of Man with a kiss? The betrayal of Judas. Isn't that he stood in the court and testified lying about the Lord Jesus? He didn't join the witnesses and say things that were false about him. He didn't add his voice to those who were trying to destroy him what he did was he had the opportunity and the will to lead the enemies of Christ right to where he was. And Peter summarizes his betrayal in Acts 1 verse 16 where he says he was guide to them that took Jesus. He was guide to them. What do we learn from all of this? Again, you go back to the portion. Then entered Satan into Judas, surnamed Iscariot. What does that mean? What does it mean? We read of demon possession in the life of our Lord Jesus Christ. We see some bizarre activity. Strange behavior. Think of the demoniac. You don't see any of that with Judas. You don't see him acting crazy. Acting mad. He's going to sit there around the table while Jesus says, one of you will betray me. And he doesn't flinch. In John 13, verse 2, the Spirit puts it this way, and supper being ended, the devil having now put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, put it into his heart. Why did this happen? How does Satan get an inroad here? What part does Satan have? Well, certainly Satan is an instrument. There were factors that were in Judas that opened up his heart to satanic influence. This is what I want us, as we close to consider carefully. Again, you don't have erratic behavior in the sense of you don't have a man who's drinking, taking drugs, listening to rock music and filling his mind with like filth, doing rituals of inviting Satan into him. You don't have any of that. As I pondered this, 
and narrowed it down to two primary factors. Two weaknesses in Judas that Satan seized upon and took control of. The first might be summarized as anger at God. Anger at God. If I'm right in Christ's focusing in on Judas on that occasion at the close of John 6, that he is doing so like as he speaks to filter out those who are desirous that he might come and be king and so on and so forth and he's pushing them back and giving them clarity as to the true purpose of the ministry of the Son of Man. If I'm right in that, then you have a man who continues on in the confusion angry and upset at every occasion when Jesus will not seize upon the opportunity to do what he ought to be doing. These people want to make you king. They want, and if you get the support of the people, this could change Israel. Why won't you do it? As the crowds swell, and as the, the, the thousands gather in Jerusalem and sing their hosannas, Judas watches all of this with this little desire, this is the time, this is the time. And as every time Jesus walks away from the crowd, removes himself from fame, shows himself to have no interest in taking such a position, you have a man who's increasingly angry. Like I say, I wonder if part of the frustration was not just the sacrifice of the ointment, like the material sacrifice of it, but the the depiction, what it was pointing towards, it was towards his burial, is giving indication of, of, of the fact that he's going to die. And that's not what he wants the Messiah to do. That's not what he got on board for. So he's angry. And this is a warning, brethren and sisters. It's a warning because that seed of disappointment regarding providence regarding what God is doing or not doing in your life that is dangerous when it is unchecked when you continue on feeling like things are unfair and God hasn't done what you thought he should and you're har harboring this in your heart it multiplies and it grows and with that anger against God with that disappointment at divine providence and no matter how you try to manipulate things, things don't turn out the way you thought they should. You open the door to satanic influence because it's bitterness against God. You're resenting what he's doing. There can be no thanksgiving from such a spirit and an unthankful heart is a mark of those who are found in a decaying state spiritually. So anger at God. And secondly, uncontrolled passions. Uncontrolled passions. If part of his issue was with regard to the disappointment of Jesus not doing what he thought he should, what he hoped he would, the other factor is that here's a man with a passion, a lust for money. You're told that he was a thief. He could not control his passions. With access to money, he could not control his desire to take some for himself. And so here you have these, not 
him struggling with external providence, as it were, struggling with the occurrences of life. This is an internal issue. This is a heart problem. These are uncontrolled passions. They manifest in various ways. For Judas, it was greed. Think of it, 30 pieces of silver. That's probably about half of the value of the ointment that was poured out upon Jesus. This woman took that and, and offered it as a, in sacrifice and love for Christ. And he's willing to betray Jesus for half the value of it. Again, it may have been this thought of that 300 pence. I could have had a little portion of that myself. Well, given that you refuse to listen to me, I'm going to find that little portion another way. The warning of Judas Iscariot is that someone can be exposed to the highest privileges imaginable sitting under teaching preaching the constant reading of the word the exercising of miracles seeing them performed performing them yourself this is what the many in the Pentecostal movement they imagine that miracles are the de facto proof and evidence that God is in it and this is a good man not necessarily Judas was performing miracles. He was involved in all the ministry and acts. He came back like everyone else, rejoicing that the devils were made subject to them. There was nothing amiss. He fit right in. He had the highest privileges. But he went to hell. He went to hell. We will consider more about this when we get to the betrayal itself, but let it be a sobering warning concerning the, the seeds that resulted in him, his heart being open to satanic influence. Anger at God. Uncontrolled passions. Lusts for the things of this world world I'm so tempted to just carry on multiplying the various ways that might be expressed but I leave it for your own meditation you know when you get sick you're not meant to get sick you're a Christian Christians aren't meant to get sick and have incurable diseases and so on so some imagine and you get upset and angry why, why would God allow this why would he allow chronic pain why does, why does he permit this to me and you, you start questioning and questioning and questioning and you open your heart to Satan or you have lusts you lust for women and money and ambition these lusts, passions, unchecked, 
but not the door. Satan comes in. I'll give you your riches. God of mercy. Let's bow together in prayer. Imagine being so close to Jesus and perishing. Some of you really, your life isn't much different. You have been brought very close to Christ, as close as any other could desire. Your parents have taught you the word You have been instructed from your earliest years in Sunday school. You have had loved ones pray for you. You have Bibles in your home for various memorization of scripture, Christmas gifts, gifts from grandparents who want you to have the word of God. Hardly a day goes by, but you do not brush past Jesus in some way. And yet you're not saved. It is time to seek the Lord. God, we pray, deliver us. Deliver us from making the errors Judas made. Deliver us from folly pray that you'll graciously give to us spiritual sight for Jesus Christ to value him above everything else to take up our cross daily and follow him even to say though none go with me still I will follow no turning back no turning back Grant that at the end we will be found in him. May all here tonight be found in him. Let no one perish. Bless thy word. Be with us in our fellowship. Go with us in the week before us. Empower thy church Equip her to live no matter what's coming our way. And may the grace of the Lord Jesus, the love of God the Father, and the fellowship of the Spirit be with all the people of God now and evermore. Amen.